1: Welcome back, Monday, June nineteenth, twenty twenty. David, good to see you. Bill, good to see you. Six zero two five zero eight zero nine six zero. Last week, former President Barack Obama attacked Tim Scott and Nikki Haley for not being, by his lights, serious enough in understanding the seriousness of racism in this country. Again, another minority race multimillionaire lecturing on how hard it is for minorities to succeed here, like when Whoopi Goldberg or Sonny Hostin do it. But it's even more odd in that before Barack Obama was president, back in 2007, he went to the Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma, Alabama, and proclaimed, quote, I stand on the shoulders of giants. I thank the Moses generation. But we've got to remember now that Joshua still had a job to do, close quote. What he meant there is that the 1960s civil rights, civil disobedience, the Martin Luther King and John Lewis generation were the Moses generation. He was of the next or Joshua generation. And he went on to say, quote, there are still battles that need to be fought. Some rivers that need to be crossed. The previous generation, the Moses generation pointed the way they took us 90 percent of the way there. We still got that 10% in order to cross over to the other side. So the question I guess that I have today is what's called of us in this Joshua generation? What do we do in order to fulfill that legacy, to fulfill the obligations and the debt that we owe to those who allowed us to be here today? Close quote. So we were 90% of the way there before he became president. How far, as Larry Elder likes to ask, do we think we cut into that other 10% by dint of electing him President, not once but twice, against the two most famous Republicans in America, and one of them a war hero and perhaps the most famous American in the world at the time, did we get to 90 percent, 95 percent of the way there? Perhaps, did electing a black vice president as well get us another point? Perhaps we're at 96 or 97 percent. But after all that, now Barack Obama says, as he did last week, that Tim Scott and Nikki Haley. Paint too rosy a scenario about America and do not take endemic racism here seriously enough. Then he said something really curious, and I quote directly from his podcast with David Axelrod. Quote, I think there is a long history of African-American or other minority candidates within the Republican Party who will validate America and say everything's great and we can all make it. Close quote. Nobody says everything is great, or they wouldn't be running for office. But what of that odd phrase, validate America? America's not to be validated? Did anyone pick up on this? Did he not validate America by living here and swearing an oath to defend it? It's a problem to validate America? Really? This is not a man unskilled in language. To validate means to make strong and defend. Making America strong and defending and justifying her is a problem for Obama. Why be such a country's president? Why be a president? Why be a president of an invalid country? In that today is Juneteenth, a little history taken from our book *America: The Last Best Hope*. After issuing the Emancipation Proclamation, Lincoln opened the ranks of the U.S. military to black soldiers and sailors. Frederick Douglass responded enthusiastically, traveling throughout the North to encourage enlistment. His perennial speech topic, quote, Why should the colored man enlist? And he said, quote, You will stand more erect, walk more assured, feel more at ease, and be less liable to insult than you were before. He who fights the battles of America may claim America as his country and have that claim respected, he told his avid listeners. Pretty good validation over a century ago, it seems to me. How could Douglas validate our country, but Obama cannot? Not just self-respect was at stake, though. Douglas wanted nothing less than full civil and political equality for black people. Quote, he said, quote, Once let the black man get upon his person the brass letters U.S. Let him get an eagle on his button and a musket on his shoulder and bullets in his pocket. And there is no power on earth or under the earth that can deny he has earned the right of citizenship in the United States, quote. With his own massive dignity and with the moral force he brought to his cause, he challenged his, challenged his listeners, quote, I say again, this is our chance, and woe betide us if we fail to embrace it, quote. Black Americans would heed the abolitionists' call. By war's end, more than 200,000 of them would rally round the flag. As Frederick Douglass would later say, the ending of slavery not only liberated liberated the black man, but the white man as well. So it is curious as to how we are here where we are today. We know the failure of Reconstruction. We know the history of Jim Crow. It's sad and it's terrible. And I'm glad we we had a civil rights movement and a federal government willing to enforce laws brought about by the civil rights movement. But the country is not stagnant on these things. Jeff Jacoby ran the numbers on how far America and Americans have come. In 1958, less than half of white Americans polled by Gallup said that if black people came to live next door, they would be likely to move. By 1978, only 13% said that. By 1997, 1%. That's only one measure of racism's profound decline. Friendship is another. In 1964, a mere 18% of white Americans claimed to have a friend who was black. Four decades later, Gallup found that the proportion of interracial friendships had more than quadrupled. 82% of whites said they had close non-white friends, and 88% of blacks reporting have reported having close friends who were not black. This could not happen any more than the enforcement of civil rights laws could happen, any more than the double election of Barack Obama could happen, in a systematically racist country or a country with racism buried deep in its DNA. I read a story in the Arizona Republic a year or so ago. It had this interesting quote in the story about Juneteenth. Quote, we are still trying to get free from many things, said Carlos Hill, professor of African-American African American studies at the University of Oklahoma. Quote, but the principal thing we are trying to get free from is random racist violence in the form of private killings and state-sanctioned violence like the case with George Floyd. close quote. That's quite right in one part and quite wrong in another. Random racist violence, as I might add any violence, is horrible. And it will happen for the rest of our lives because lives are made up of humans who can be good and decent and bad and indecent and imperfect. And everything that can be done should be done to arrest and prevent it. It's quite wrong, though, when the good professor says it is state-sanctioned. What in the hell is he talking about? Nobody, but nobody, not the president, not the attorney general, not the governor of Minnesota, nor the mayor of Minneapolis, not the chief of police there, approved of George Floyd's killing. It was widely denounced and renounced, and the offending officer was arrested and sentenced by the state. That's the state sanction. To say that Floyd's death was state-sanctioned is to profess to teach poorly and to attempt to reinforce a racist stereotype that simply does not exist. The country was revulsed by what happened in Minneapolis. Where is the state sanction? And where is the state sanctioning any violence against black Americans or any other Americans? May I quote Clay Travis, who wrote an open letter to Colin Kaepernick a few years ago, He said, what does the United States do to oppress black people? I'm not being obtuse with the question. What tangible decisions does the United States government make that oppress black people and other people of color? I want actual governmental actions that legally treat black people differently in a negative fashion. Because when I review federal law, what I see is the exact opposite of black oppression. Everyone is treated as equally as they possibly can be by the federal government. There is no systemic racism in our federal government. In fact, affirmative action is actually a governmental attempt to treat black people unequally, which is to say more favorably than other people, solely because of their race. If anything, the United States government's laws discriminate in favor of black people based on their skin color. I'm open to hearing what systemic oppression people believe the United States government is undertaking and what they believe needs to be redressed, but nobody can provide one specific We can think of, if I'm asked to treat opinions with respect, opinions need to be worthy of respect, not just insipid generalities. Instead, we have engendered a myth and series of myths that have served as excuses and riots, and now those riots turned into such things as we all saw this in 2020, or should have the burning and violent taking down of statues like George Washington's in the city of Portland. George Washington. Did Washington own slaves? Yes, he did. Did he become the first president of a country that dedicated itself to slavery's eradication? Yes, he did. As Harry Jaffa put it, It was not wonderful that a nation of slaveholders, upon declaring their independence, did not abolish slavery. What was wonderful, perhaps even miraculous, was that this nation of slaveholders, upon becoming independent, declared that all men are created equal, and thereby made the abolition of slavery a moral as well as a logical necessity. Quote. As Lincoln put it, and I quote, all men are created equal. This they said this they said and this they meant. They did not mean to assert the obvious untruth that all were then actually enjoying that equality, nor yet that they were about to confer it immediately upon them. In fact they had no power to confer Such a boon. They meant simply to declare the right so that the enforcement of it might follow as fast as circumstances would permit. They meant to set up a standard maxim for free society which should be familiar to all and revered by all, constantly looked to, constantly labored for, and even though never perfectly attained, constantly approximated, and thereby constantly spreading and deepening its influence and augmenting the happiness and value of life to all people of all colors everywhere." The assertion that all men are created equal was of no practical use in effecting our separation from Great Britain, and it was placed in the de- Declaration not for that, but for future use. Its authors meant it to be, and thank God it is now proving itself a stumbling block to those who in after times might seek to turn a free people back into the hateful paths of despotism. They knew the proper they knew the proneness of prosperity to breed tyrants, and they meant. When such should reappear in this fair land and commence their vocation, they should find left for them at least one hard nut to crack, quote. So today is a celebration of Juneteenth, which is a celebration of the Emancipation Proclamation, which was the work and handiwork of an intellectual work of Abraham Lincoln, a white man whose monuments were also defaced by the BLM movement riots from Portland to Washington, D.C., Someone needs to get this story straight, and I think the straight story is this. God bless Abraham Lincoln, and God bless the hundreds of thousands of Americans who marched to and fought to their deaths so that this country could be free. I get the narrative is that this was a slaveholding country. It was also not a slaveholding country. And those who were not, and who bled and fought to their deaths to make men free, won. They won. We won. They, our side, was also the larger part of the country by about double in states and by about four times in population. The larger part of the country in states and in population was not slaveholding and was against it and fought it and won. So why is the narrative the one of the side that lost, the one that had fewer states and fewer people? Why is the smaller and losing part the one we are judged by? It's a funny thing, you know, it's often said history is written by the victors. How has our history been corrupted so and perverted so as if it were the losers who won and it was written and burned in amber by those losers? It was not, but there is an investment in making it appear so. But to do that, you have to invert and reverse American history. You have to change it. One might say you have to say it with me, invalidate it. You can do that for two reasons if you hate America or if you want to hate America. I cannot understand why one would want to hate something unless they are preternaturally disposed to constant and continued revolution. But that is what we face, and it begins with what Orwell warned us was the hallmark and conclusion of tyranny. Every record has been destroyed or falsified, every book rewritten, every picture repainted, every statue and street building renamed, every date altered and the process is continuing day by day and minute by minute. History has stopped. Nothing exists except an endless present in which the party is always right. I would use that word party, but I'd also use the word vanguard. But don't give in to this. Humanity, love, freedom, and equality are too important. And thank God we live in a country that was founded on those principles and still has a majority that believes in them. One might even say validates them. I'm Seth and We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leapson show. One is a crawling and one's on the way. Kind of an interesting song, an old Loretta Lynn song that, uh, was really quite a conservative song. If you go through the rest of the lyrics, you know, you could talk about Liz flying to France or Jackie in a discotheque. We're talking that she means Liz Taylor and Jackie uh, Onassis in those days. That's when this was written. Raquel Welch just signed a million dollar pact. Debbie's out in Vegas working a brand new act, Debbie being Debbie Reynolds. It's a really interesting set of conservative lyrics that that's what, you know, the culture cares about, but here in Topeka, the screen doors are banging, the coffee's a-boiling, the wash needs a-hanging, and one's on the way. One needs a cookie, and one wants a in and one's on the way. And then they even get into other things, like um, uh, the pill. And the pill may change the world tomorrow, but meanwhile today, here in Topeka, the rain is well- why am I doing this? It's just an interest. first of all, it was written by one of the most interesting- songwriters, many of you may know the child book, the young adult, it's children's book, the children's book, The Giving Tree. Do you know The Giving Tree? Do you ever see it by Shel Silverstein or the poetry Where the Sidewalk Ends? I've got to walk it and my po- – uh, that's Seuss. But the Where the Sidewalk Ends, that was all Shel Silverstein. He wrote this song as he wrote uh, A Boy Named Sue for Johnny Cash as well. And um, – it's, it's just interesting that, uh, that you don't see, um, you don't see lyrics like that anymore. You don't see lyrics that take on too often. And things change. Even country music changed. Country music, you know, used to be the last bastion of, uh, of, of conservatism in the music world. And it just isn't anymore. Oh, there's some conservatives in it, and if you tune into the awards shows, the best you can say is you get no politics, which is itself now a conservative position, and I'm grateful for it. Good, you know, shut up and sing, as Laura Ingram used to say, maybe she still does. But you know, you find an awful lot of these country musicians doing endorsements and and uh, perf- and performances for. Uh, liberal and democratic candidates getting involved in boycotts against places like Florida and things like that. There's only a handful, if even that, only a handful of country musicians who are outspokenly conservative. The fact that they don't talk about politics may be its own form of conservatism. And again, as I say, that's fine. Okie and Muskogee would have been part of that You know, that that era too, right, David? By the way, what pin do you have on today?
0: I've got an old one today. It's it's an actual lapel flower from Uh the 1930s. 1936, it's Landon and Knox. Uh
1: Ha-ha, Landon and Knox, 1936, Alf Landon, who was the father of?
0: Well, this relates to the song. He was the governor of...
1: Yeah, of course. But he was the father of Nancy Kasebaum, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, that's right. And she married Howard Baker, if mm-hmm. I'm not mistaken. Am I right about that? Yes, you are. Howard Baker was George Will's pick for president in the 1980 primaries before he dropped out. People think that, you know, these conservative. I mean, George Will was a conservative then, as Bill Buckley was. Reagan won their first choice. They got on board... But they weren't his right. But Buckley's first choice was George H. W. Believe it or not.
0: You you want to watch something interesting? Go watch that Iowa primary debate that Reagan was not a part of.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's right, that's right. That would be fun. Was Baker in that one? Yes. Yeah, we'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. It's uh, been a while since I was able to say this, so welcome back to John Dombrowski. He is the president and founder of Grand Canyon Planning Associates, and his website is GrandCanyonPlanning.com. Great way to reach out to him. He is also the host of his own radio show here every Saturday morning at 7 a.m., the word on wealth. Welcome back, John, from Thank your you. travels.
2: I wish I was in Jamaica.
1: <laughs> I know. Well, they take your money and break yeah, your heart. Break your you heart. don't want to. I be guess
2: injured. maybe maybe I go yeah, to Hawaii instead. Yeah, yeah, instead. yeah.
1: I'd rather be at Grand Canyon <laughs> Planning, where you heal hearts and make money. <laughs> there people. you go. Yeah, yeah. Don't go to Jamaica. Go to Grand Canyon Planning. That's
2: a that's a new one. Yeah. We'll use that. I'll yeah, maybe that. you can. Yeah. It's
1: not exactly as running out of time as good as running out of time. You came up with that one, didn't you? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that was good work. I hope your travels went well anywhere
2: fun uh yeah we had a good time tracy good. and i were out and about and enjoyed a little bit of uh it was warm, but it was good. Markets off yep. today. By yep, off, closed. I mean closed. Yes. yes.
1: Uh, not off. That has its own technical meaning because of Juneteenth, which I guess yes. was our second year of celebrating it. Yes. And right. a lot of people didn't remember that it was a federal holiday, mm-hmm. at least in the people I, said, I was talking to. I guess it takes a couple of years for people to- Yeah, to get in the swing. Yeah, right. to get into the swing of things. <laughs> yeah. Tech stock. So no mails, no banks, no stocks. No, that's Tech, right. But there is an interesting story that kind of has all the- all the all the buzzwords in the headline at the Wall mm-hmm. Street Journal: tech stock boom pits AI against the Fed. What yeah. are we talking about here? This is exciting stuff.
2: Well, of course, AI, artificial artificial intelligence. intelligence yes, yeah. uh, and uh, that's becoming more of a common household yeah. acronym. Yeah, now, right. We're, yeah. we're we're seeing uh, a lot of uh, tech companies right now that have had this tremendous amount of boost. Uh, to their stock price based on this AI issue thinking that hey a lot of these companies are poised uh, for the next generation of uh, AI which is coming And it all started with that chat GBT right mm-hmm. yep uh, now what, what's interesting about this is you've got the two sides right You've got these people out there that believe um, this is you know here and it's a it's reality now this is this is and something wonderful. And then you've got the other side that's saying, hey, this is has all the signs of the tech bubble yeah, yeah. Uh, back in uh, 1999, 2000, yep. 2001. Dot bomb The dot-com bubble. Yeah. Which is, of course, if any uh, company was going public and it had a dot-com after it, it didn't matter what they did or if they made money, uh, that, you know, the stock price shot up dramatically. Right. Uh, and there was a lot of hype and a lot of, you know, uh, some – some issues that maybe people truly didn't understand the risks that were there, and and many are comparing this to that. But I would say this: the companies that have really benefited from this are companies such as Nvidia, Apple, mm-hmm. um, Meta, and Microsoft. These are big companies, and you know there's something called the Fang stocks. Right. If anyone remembers what the Fang stocks were. Uh, which was Facebook, which is now Meta mm-hmm. and then you had Apple, mm-hmm. you had uh, Amazon, you mm-hmm. had Microsoft and you had Netflix. So now it's a mange. Now it's a mange. yeah yeah So we've got uh, you know all of these companies which are big and in some cases trillion dollar companies. Yeah. Another one is Tesla, of course, uh, which is not mentioned in Fang. I guess it would be Fang Ta. Yeah, uh, or to or but Ma- Ma- uh, yeah. whatever it might <laughs> <Yeah>. be, um, <laughs> <Whatever> it <is. laughs> you know, so these companies, I just want to, you know, even if and I'm just going to say this, even if this is the potential of some type of a bubble. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And these yeah. stocks have run up dramatically over the past couple of months. Uh, the thing is, is that these companies in 2022 um, took a haircut that was pretty severe. Right. Uh, we had companies uh, such as Microsoft. Uh, down 29%, Amazon down 51%, uh, we had NVIDIA down 52%, Tesla down 72%, Meta down 65%. These stocks all took such a tremendous haircut last year. So even without AI, they had already been on the trajectory of a recovery. Mm -hmm. Uh, But AI certainly has brought uh, more attention to them. And NVIDIA, of course, is the one company that makes the chips that they believe uh, in the market, believes in many investors, that this is a company that's ahead of the other chip makers out there, just as Tesla is ahead of a lot of the other electric vehicle makers out there. So, I mean, I believe that, uh, yeah, maybe stocks are a little ahead of themselves, but there most likely is a little bit of something to this AI issue, and uh, I think this is going to be possibly the next Uh, place for uh, many companies to begin uh, putting their money into because they're going to be left behind if not.
1: Um, good analysis, John. Thank you. Yeah. And we need to talk a little bit about the Fed too. Yeah. Uh, Jerome Powell is going to be in Congress this week. We'll do it as it comes. Yeah, so. we could we yeah. could talk
2: about that tomorrow. Great. We, we did not get really into the relationship yeah. of it, but we will.
1: Okay, thanks, brother.
2: You bet. Securities and Advisory Services offered through Creative One Securities LLC, a member of FINRA and Investment an investment advisor. Grand Canyon Associates LLC and Creative One Securities LLC are not affiliated. Talk tomorrow. You didn't miss a beat.
1: Nope. brother. Nicely done. Thank you. Welcome sir. home. I'm back. Yeah. Welcome back to the Seth Leipsan Show six zero two five zero eight zero nine six zero. A couple interesting things: uh, polarization. People often like to say, particularly Democrats, the media, and uh, moderates in the Republican Party that the Republican Party has changed. We've been through this a lot over time, and we've been through it a lot. There's a really interesting poll out that shows that it's the Democratic Party that has changed, not the Republicans. Um, And it comes from a great pollster named Bill McInturf, one of the greatest pollsters, most respected pollsters in the country. Steve Hayward highlights it over... At the um, at the Powerline blog, Uh, the percentage of Democrats who described themselves as very liberal in 2012. So that would have been as recently as the reelection of Barack Obama. The percentage of Democrats who described themselves as very liberal was 19 percent then. Today. 30%. 30%. Thirty percent. Thirty percent. The percentage of Democrats that described themselves as liberal in 2012 was 43 percent. Today, 55 percent. Um, it's it's the Democratic Party that is increasingly changed. I, I was joking just a little bit around uh, before the show with um, David, producer, young David. Uh, and we were talking about—I well, don't remember how McGovern's name came up, but— um, Simon and Garfunkel. Oh, yeah, Simon and Garfunkel. 72. Right, right, right. The song Kodachrome, I was trying to explain it to people that had not heard it. Have you heard it, Bill? You know the song. But yeah, most people had. I was surprised two people I, I know didn't know it. One of them was young David, and one of them was someone um, more our age. But anyway, an old Paul Simon song— and um, you you said something about they were McGovern people, and I said I would take McGovern today. Um, McGovern was known as, as, as the liberal of the liberals in the Democratic Party in 1972. But if you look at what he stood for, uh, I'd take it, and uh, I would take it for the Democratic. It was more conservative than what Bill Clinton stood for in the 90s, and – towards the end of his uh, career mcgovern became outspoken in going after the unions he he just he did not like the uh, the brute force and tactics of what the unions were doing or the unions doing to the democratic party and if you watch any of his if you watch any of his old firing line debates with bill buckley you will see that this is a Democrat you would have much preferred than the party today. You want to talk about a change. The change from George McGovern, even then or in his retirement, to Joe Biden, then to today, it's immense. It's immense. You you put George McGovern on the scene today as he was in his last, I don't know, 20 or 30 years in public life. And he'd sound like... Um, who would he sound like? He'd sound like uh, a moderate Republican. He'd sound like John Kasich or someone like that. All right. Anyway, uh, why did I get stuck on? Oh, yes. Party polarization. It's the Democratic Party that has changed. Uh, they, they wanted no truck with socialism. They'd hated and resented being called socialists. Now they're just proud, proudly hanging it in the window and elevating socialists to, to chair major Senate committees. And uh, happy to have people like Nancy Pelosi when she was Speaker of the House endorsing socialists running for Congress, even over and against non-socialist Democrats in those primaries, sending them money, endorsing them. I mean, that's just something that would have been unheard of, unheard of uh, when we were when I was in college or even 15, 20 years ago. So, you ask, what is the meaning of this? What is the meaning of this comfort with socialism? What is the meaning of comfort with the democratic socialists of America? What is the meaning of comfort and support for outwardly vocal and proud socialists like Bernie Sanders and Alexandria Ocasio Cortez? What is the meaning of it? Believe them, take it seriously. Understand them as they understand themselves. It shouldn't be hard. It shouldn't be hard. I don't know any Republican seeking office. I don't know any Republican office holder that would be equally on the other side of that. Of that um, of that valence. I don't know any Republican or Republican office holder that runs as a fascist. The only time fascist is tied to the Republican Party is when socialists yell it and say that it is. They're proud to define themselves as socialists. We're not fascists. We don't affiliate with fascism, and we resent it. Hell, when one tried to run for governor of a state, circa 1991, 1, 2, 92, David Duke, The party read him out of the party. George Bush read him out of the party, said this is not a Republican. This is not the Republican Party. Have they ever done that with a socialist? No. They endow and finance them. And if you think socialism isn't dangerous, read the constitutions of the old Soviet Union and read the constitutions of the present Cuban government and the present Chinese government, where they proclaim themselves socialist states animated by Marxist Leninism. In the case of China, Marxist Maoism, as it says twice in their constitution. In the case of Cuba, Marxist Castroism, as or Fidelism, I think they call it, in their constitution. They're not shy about it either. And we sit around thinking, well, they're democratic socialists, which means they won't do it, how did Mao put it, through the power of the barrel of the gun, they'll do it through the power of the ballot. You don't need a bullet if you can convince the people to do it with the ballot. But the ideology is the same, which is why when they're being honest, as Bernie Sanders is, and I give him credit for that, he praises things that are unheard of here as well, or were. Like, why do we need 16 different brands of toothpaste and bread lines are good things? They tell us. We should start believing them. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. The Biden administration's handling of the economy—you tell me. The bank failures, the stock market volatility, the hardened inflation. People talk about a ref- of a, of, a, of an upcoming recession. Where do you go to invest money? Well, Y Refi has an investment in a portfolio with a high fixed rate of return, and it's not correlated to the stock market or the Fed. It's a portfolio where you can compound your money. You can. Turn your monthly income on or off, whatever you like, with no loss of principal. if you need your money back at any time. No fees, collateralized, secure portfolio. Y-Refi is based here, headquartered here locally, and they're over at the Scottsdale, on Scottsdale Road in the 101. I, they encourage you to stop by their offices. I've been there. You won't get any kind of sales pitch. No one's going to ask you to sign anything. They just like talking about what they do and letting it speak for itself. When you meet with the team at Y-Refi, you'll see why trust and like them so much and you can too. If you play trumpet, they have a few of them there for you as well. You can honk on. Y-Refi is a due diligence approved firm and you can earn up to a ten and a quarter percent rate of return. That's right, a ten point two five percent fixed rate of return. Check them out at investyrefi.com. It's the word invest, the letter Y, then REFY.com or give them a call at eight 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 YRefi thirty four. That's eight 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 YRefi thirty four. For this will make you uh, comfortable from the Daily Wire. Border Patrol records one thousand percent increase in illegal immigration from China and Afghanistan. You worried about illegal immigration from those countries? Are those countries of concern to you? A thousand percent increase. Border Patrol has experienced an increase of more than a thousand percent of migrants from countries including China. And Afghanistan from fiscal year 2022 to 2023, according to Border Patrol Chief Raul Ortiz, he uh, posted social media data indicating similar migrant increases from Algeria, Egypt, Ethiopia, Vietnam, Paraguay, Mauritania, Djibouti, and the Dominican Republic. That's that's a lot of increase. That's a big number. While Border Patrol only recorded 342 encounters with migrants from China in fiscal year 2021, the number jumped to 1,987 in 2022 before surging to 9,753 in the first seven months of 2023. But all you hear is that illegal immigration is down. Well, you hear it from people who have a pretty good record of lying. You know how they, you know they're lying? They use words like malarkey, and they think that we are in a country that should say, God save the queen. We'll be right back.